We have ignition and we have liftoff. We have liftoff of the Titan Centaur carrying the first of two Voyager spacecraft to extend man's senses farther into the solar system than ever before. V-O-Y-A-G-E-R, Voyager. Voyager 6, NASA. National Aeronautics and Space Administration, Jim. This was launched more than 300... We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Skywatchers, this is it. This is the day we get the first science images back from the James Webb Space Telescope. And you've got a front row seat to the cosmos. Welcome to voice print identification. It's 2001, a space policy. I'm Wes. And I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, now. Previously while recording, 2001, a space policy. Breaking news, breaking science news. We have a tragedy on our hands. It seems that the Voyager probes are going to be powering down soon. No. And this comes in just two hours ago. It's possible that they could make it for another three years or so on their... uh, current engine status but it might be less than that and that is uh a very very sad time yes they've been up there longer since than... 1977 and their mission is is soon to come to them for us now again i say emissary carrying the golden discs they're exiting our intrasolar bubble and and going into interstellar space where they will continue to drift they may find their way into another far-flung galaxy could take it millions of years to do so but there's a record and not just a a record but a uh, a human thumbprint that will forever exist that will show any other intelligent life that we were here and we were able to push ourselves to create a mission that didn't necessarily bring us monetary gain or huge breakthroughs in everyday life but what it did is it expanded our horizons and and gave us that fervor the the human manifest destiny of exploration and will continue to serve as a, a monument to that. Amen. Until it may perhaps be intercepted and fulfill its next incredible purpose and introduce another civilization to Carl Sagan and the painting of Jim Gray. You've been with this mission for decades. Uh, how do you feel today? I am so thrilled and so relieved. This was so hard, and we took, it took so long. Um, it's just impossible to convey how hard it really was. That we risked so much to say, we're going to go do this, and it's so near impossible. But we did it. 10, 9, 
8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, unité, top. And we have engine start. And liftoff. Décollage. Décollage, liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. Voyager 1 and 2 spacecraft launched from Earth in 1977. Yeah. The Hubble Space Telescope was launched into low Earth orbit in 1990. 2022, the James Webb Space Telescope becomes active. Launched in December of 2021, if I'm not mistaken. You've been talking about this for 10 years. Launched on the Ariane 5, and I was very nervous about that, if you recall, because <laughs> we watched one of those explode just a few years prior, and uh, could you imagine taking this all the way to term and then just uh, catastrophically detonating on a launch pad i probably would have curled up and died <laughs> collective engineers holding their breath um, but it was a it was a smooth launch and um i believe they went out of um french guyana they have a a special um pad out there for usually satellite you know ju just like payloads that jwst is is uh Kind of made up of so yeah it was a smooth launch everyone's super excited and the deployment that was the other thing uh deploying those uh shields to protect it from the heat and keep those uh, photographic elements as cold as possible i i believe our good friend bill and i said on the sun side of those shields, it would reach around 200 degrees centigrade. And on the cold side, we are looking at just frosty, frosty abyssal cold. And that helps stabilize the instrument and allows them to detect very, very faint infrared. Because the molecules, <clears throat> the movement of molecules is what can obscure the clarity of an image, right? Which is why the earthbound telescopes yeah we have a huge hurdle to go through as far as our atmosphere it's full of molecules distorting um, even on a clear day you may not see it but there's moisture in the air um, we also have upper atmosphere uh, obscurities i mean we, we could have things from um, magnetic field you know aurora borealis and all of those kind of add up and, and distort light as it's coming through. And that's why you see a lot of the major telescopes like the Keck telescope in uh, Hawaii. And um, unfortunately, we, we did lose our South American friend uh, this year. Um, but th they want to go high elevation and they want to go um, where there's very, very little humidity and that keeps the distortion down to uh, a minimum. So the James Webb Space Telescope is now one of the coldest objects in space, officially. At uh, minus 444, no, at 448.15 degrees Fahrenheit, it's nearly as cold as the vacuum of space. An incredible leap over the course of- 30 years. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. 
we're about the same age as Hubble, so mm-hmm. just a little bit older. So that's been an we're incredible about to be ride. We're so <laughs> strap in. <laughs> right, exactly. If anyone wants to send someone to come and recalibrate us, you know, don't get lost in the space. I, I've I've told you time and time again, I'll take uh, any kind of biotic upgrades or cybernetic implants. Uh, Steve Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Better, stronger, faster. We have jettisoned the uh, boosters from the Titan. Between the Voyager 1 and 2 missions, where they ended up adding the camera and mm. taking all those massive planetary images, and, and one of the first images of some of these really extrasolar planets like Neptune and Uranus, um, it's just incredible. They used to be just points of light, and we were able to take it to like an atmospheric level almost by way of using gravitational assist by these planets. The spaceship was able to not only fly by and take these great vistas, but grab an immense boost that didn't allow it to um, waste too much of its propulsion. And that way it was able to get all the way out to the extrasolar portions of our system. It's pretty cool. But Voyager, images come in, public interest sparked. Then we get uh, small evolutions and technology that allows manned space flight we're in the cold war we're in the space race it's just wild to see all these really high resolution images and then see like the apollo footage and it's grainy and just low res and black and white and just kind of unfortunate um still incredible but what 15 years after that hubble is primed and ready to go and it gives us some of the images of galaxies and nebula that we never even thought possible. Absolutely mind-blowing, things that people hadn't even imagined. 50 years earlier, we thought there was life on Mars. You know, we we just come so far. Uh, So we've got the Voyager twins, Hubble, and then full succession to JWST. Uh, Even though they were different missions hubble and jwc are very much you know peas in a pod Mm -hmm. Uh, the science couldn't be more different but the uh, public outreach i think is going to have a similar effect in a very positive way Uh, what's really exciting is one of the mission scientists was talking today about how there are features that they have yet to even bring online yet so i don't even know what that means they're already using i think at least two different infrared cameras and other spectral uh, optics it is just bringing in raw images that oh Mm. it's like going to church Mm. Mm. we're so lucky to be able to see these and i mean the some of those images will probably be passed around, or not passed around, but you know, shared, um, you know, for decades to come. 
Absolutely. First light. Mm-hmm. It's only going to get better. And imagine Hubble's first light when it was everything's blurry. Cool, we made the lens wrong. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. It's going to have to be replaced. And administratively, it's interesting, too, because the the really important ones always seem like they're on the verge of being scrapped constantly. Mm. When Hubble brought back those images and they were blurry and out of focus and they couldn't fix it, I mean, there was pulls for deorbiting it and <laughs> completely scrapping the mission. Oh, would have been a... Yeah. A complete shame. I mean, those deep field Hubble images yeah. are just absolutely mind-boggling. Oh no, and and it was saved through through public outrage that it was going to be let go. You know, sorry folks, uh, that's the end of the line. But no, there was a there was an emotional attachment, and it was everywhere from you know political cartoons to newspaper cartoons to television cartoons the references to the hubble and saving the hubble was more vociferous perhaps even than saving pluto as a planet we let pluto go pretty easily but the nice thing is um i think it's because we got that really um kind of tailored mission uh to pluto and and we we gave it its its full rights mm-hmm. as far as letting it down as a planetesimal instead of a full planet. True. But what makes it really fascinating is it's unique. You know, exactly. it's, it's, it's not like the other planets. It, it's something, it's something very different. And um, we'll be able to identify other planetesimals like it out in the Kuiper belt and it'll have a family of its own. Yeah. It's, it's like the first planet of its solar sequence. Yes. You know, instead of having Mercury, um, we, we we get to have Pluto, and then um, oh, it's promoted. Because New Horizons finished its mission in Pluto, and it basically kept going. They're like, mm. we still have fuel, we still have power, we can we can keep going. Ah, it's called Arakoff. Arakoff. Just sounds like cool. a character from Final Fantasy. Oh. Arakoff. It does four eight six nine five eight Arakoff. That's very cool. Trans-Neptunian object in the Kuiper belt. So it is bigger than an asteroid. It's definitely far too small for it to be planetesimal. And we're continuing to identify these uh, different ranges of objects. And as we get out into that post-Pluto territory, we're going to find icy moons and basically just conglomerations of wreckage from failed planets that didn't end up forming mm. too weak of gravity too low mass um, it just didn't didn't yeah. end up coalescing for those so yeah. uh, but it's interesting because a lot of that material is from the you know original forging of our solar system and we'll be able to tell uh, geologic distinctions from that compared to uh, something like a earth crust material or moon moon rocks or something that we can um, put a date and time on as a modern stone or you know some kind of mineral and compare it to the the raw undeveloped locker of failed planet
the dating process on that. Like, what was the groundwork when when moon rocks were first brought back? Like, what was the dating techniques that they used? Was it just carbon? What were the the basis for how to analyze something? I imagine they were probably looking for um, zircon, and I think um, in most molten rock. Uh, these zircon materials are, can be found, and it, it helps kind of put a, an actual date on them. The the cool thing about zircon dating, and I I don't understand this to a, a full scientific level, but instead of like carbon dating, we're using one chain to um, estimate age. This one has two different chains of isotopes, um, and that makes it a little easier to pinpoint something specific because you've got correlated data that you can um, compare it to. Carbon dating also more useful for dating organic material. So anything pre-carbon life form, you're going to need something that can be uh, decaying at a slower rate in order to get a, a more precise age. And apparently the zircon dating can date things back to about four and a half million years. There's there's organic matter, organic chemicals, not organic matter. Because, you know, you can find carbon on comets and you can find, like, uh, certain chains of organic material on planets. But it's not, it's not life. It's just organic chemicals. Definitely igneous rocks. Mm. So moon, metamorphic rocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they found a zircon molecule in a returned moon rock and they were able to use that decay chain to date it incredible that is incredible lunar zircons were not studied at the time of the apollo missions because the technology to date them did not exist says geologist clive neal of the university of notre dame it's serendipitous to find this and it really emphasizes the value of sample returns he said this is from an article West just handed me by Eugenie Samuel of New Scientist from 2009. Wow. That is just fascinating. Uh, the fact that they held onto those samples for so long and they knew that maybe the tech wasn't there to detect um, very minuscule differentiations in the geology of those return samples. But that's why missions like um, JAX's Hayabusa mm -hmm. 1 and 2 are so important. And of course, our own dear to our hearts uh, sample return mission that just completed recently. I want to talk a whole nother thing yeah, about we'll be doing that, that later. Good. But um, <laughs> supposedly, the main concern with these sample returns was the toxicology of them. And they were really concerned that some kind of um, disease or virus could be brought back from the lunar surface. The original astronauts were put into quarantine, I think for, you know, at least a few weeks after their return. Um, but what was very interesting was to try to decide um, the potential danger of the lunar samples. They took some of the dust and they fed it to cockroaches to see if there were any effects, which, I mean, feeding concrete like dust show you anything, to right? any organic being, you know, that's probably going to be harmful at some point. The wonderful thing is, 
uh, way, way after that test had been probably forgotten in cold room locker shelved. Someone tried to sell those cockroaches, um, cockroaches with moon dust inside. And the um, the FBI came in. Really? <laughs> shut down the auction and confiscated the cockroaches. <laughs> so, so now J. Edgar Hoover has the cockroach. <laughs> That's great. I'm sure it's a, a wonderful mantelpiece. Wow. Um, but also, is there a little window in there? Can you like, <laughs> is it yeah. like cockroach ant farm where exactly. I can see the moon dust going through their intestinal system? That would be wonderful. We sat in room literally every day for the past month, a group of about 30 of us, scientists and artists, and looked at these, at these data as they came down. And it was, I mean, it, it was, it was a privilege. It was amazing. And yeah, as Nestor said, you know, it was a team effort and, and the human element of trying to do the best by this mission, by, you know, humanity to, to, to really wow people. And, and the, I mean, Webb brought it the James Webb telescope, we can see solar nurseries. We can see baby planets being formed like we never have before. We're able to see things that, because of the way that light scatters and bends and refracts, it amplifies and magnifies objects behind and allows us to look deeper through the distortion of mass in space-time. And being able to, to utilize that is part of the photographic quantum leap that's going on here. This is a a million this is a million pixel image what i found interesting was how they were talking about the resolution more in detecting um micromaterials so they're looking to see through magellanic clouds they're looking to detect individual elements like oxygen hydrogen those kind of um, free-forming kind of elemental clouds coming out of the nurseries and from the dying stars. Because this is infrared photography as opposed to the photography on the Hubble Space Telescope, which is um, within our own visible wavelength. It was interesting today at the Q&A, uh, the question was asked about whether, you know, whether or not the colors in these pictures are accurate. And they are not, but they are representations. They're simulations of what they would look like because we can't see infrared images. They had to basically take substitute colors in our spectrum as proxies for the colors that we cannot see. The, each image is actually a mosaic composed of about a thousand image files, making up a total of more than 150 million pixels. The optical resolution is around um, one-tenth of an arc second. An arc second is less about time and more about geo position. It, it, it's it's juxtaposition to the spacecraft. I believe the instrument that you're talking about is the near cam, the infrared camera. This specific science instrument is the one that's giving us things in the near infrared range, and that, like you said, the colors are not discernible by human eye but we are able to um, approximate the image based on previous um, astronomical imaging that we've done. So we've already got kind of a color scale that we can work with. And we've done so much radio and infrared 
telemetry and, and optical scientific data so far. But you know now they've got it down to such a science, it's almost like how you see people colorizing black and white photos. You can take that, that range of gray color and due to the different shades of it, you're able to approximate what band of the color spectrum it's in. Um, which gives you realistic to a, a small fault kind of representation of what it would look like in color. Because classic three-strip Technicolor, two- and three-strip Technicolor, was based on that exact premise where, in fact, you had three different lenses in each camera rolling on three different rolls of film, each one receiving a black-and-white image, but with a different filter on each lens. So you have a red, green, and a blue filter, and therefore the light that comes through is processing through each specific filter and providing a black and white image onto each roll of film, which is then developed. And so each individual roll is exposed and bathed and dyed and then processed into color. So when these restorations take place by the American Film Institute or by Martin Scorsese and the Film Foundation or UCLA, it's a a very time-consuming and very expensive because they're actually doing three times the work, three times the cleanup, because when they really get a full restoration, then they're going back to the negatives and getting those individual colors accurately from the source. Because another thing that happens with color film is you have to store it in a colder temperature when you do uh, black and white because the colors can bleed. And so when separation occurs, then you'll end up with um, muddy edges and a very soft focus, sometimes a a greenish haze on older films. Yeah, I've noticed that. And that'll it's, that'll it's happen like... because the prints that are being used have suffered bleed oh. over time. And it's inevitable, mm. but the best you can do is to store it at about 40 degrees. Um, did early experimental film... I don't know if I'm recalling this from something I heard or not, but they would shoot it essentially with three different film strips and shoot one in red, one in green, one in blue, and then combine them? Does that sound familiar? That's, that's what this is. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so then each one was then combined into the prints that were made. Okay. And, and then the original negatives are all black and whites with the, through the color prism of each filter. That's each, a lot of work. Each color <laughs> yeah, really. And it's a fascinating story. And uh, the Kalmus is the guy, Dr. Kalmus. I can't remember his first name. Um, his wife, Natalie, then ex-wife, and she remained even, you know, after they divorced, um, the the head supervisor and so on. Every Technicolor production, it was required that Natalie Kalmus would be there to supervise the Technicolor. So her, her name is in all those Technicolor movies from all these different studios. But the... the, the the main thing was that she had her own aesthetic feelings about Technicolor and her certain views about what would and would not photograph well was often in contradiction with the art department, you know, what, what the production designer, what the cinematographer, and what the director thought. And so it was always a hard line to follow because she was a, a very um, hard-headed and eccentric person by all accounts with a very interesting taste in hats, some have pointed out. So I'm pretty sure Voyager 1 and 2's cameras were black and white mm-hmm. as well. Yes. It's the same technique, so the uh, two cameras on the bow of Voyager 1 and 2, uh, black and white image sensors, but they were able to take multiple images and multiple spectrums 
and by compositing that data and running them through red, green, and blue filters, they're able to produce full color images of these um, stellar beings. So color bleed through works the same in terms of light waves as it does on film, then that there is a space between color and colors can bleed through and merge and not be as clear to the naked eye as they are in, in, the, in the infrared wavelength. Yes, thank you. For example, you know, atmospheric readings of WASP-96b, which is a, a, is a gas giant exoplanet that was one of the big images that was released. And thing is, So I think what they do is they, they wait for the uh, planet to transit its nearest star. And what happens uh, when they observe these planets transiting is the light filters through the atmosphere of the planet and um, they're able to analyze uh, the chemical makeup of the atmosphere through spectral analysis. These detailed images that you were just seeing about galaxies, there's some of them for which you can see such exquisite details as to you know, where certain populations of stars are, 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 are hidden or you know, even some of the dynamics you will be able to see about these, these galaxies. So the WIGO telescope discovers these rotating neutron stars seeing the, through the gravitational waves. Laser Inferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, WIGO, yeah. Speaking of other telescopes, the Webb Space Telescope is part of a, a system of interconnecting telescopes where the telescopes can alert one another of a new discovery and, and have them change coordinates to get in a, a second or third or fourth look at, at something and get a clearer idea. Sometimes these images can be so fleeting, there's no time to reposition the original telescope, so they call upon others to corroborate the data that they brought in. And uh, this was especially true in the early days of astronomy when um, scientists were trying to corroborate stars outside of our own solar system. People didn't believe that there were uh, extrasolar bodies and galaxies, essentially. This was, you know, obviously when terrestrial scopes were the only way to observe into that space. And this was a a, a big development as far as being able to um, prove with data and images that stars and other bodies exist outside of our own solar region. And to get those images now, I mean, the the fact that over 20,000 people were involved in this mission from concept to the photographs that we got yesterday. And a lot of the data and photography that's going to come later is going to be publicly sourced, which is a beautiful way to get everyone involved. Um, Thousands more people will take this information and do incredible things with it. It's open source. You can apply for, for next year's uh, James Webb Space Telescope plan and, and, and submit a proposal to NASA to say, hey, I think you need to check out what's going on over here in, uh, you know, Zeta Reticuli. So anyone, um, anyone in the general public can propose. Um, the next cycle for proposals will probably, there'll be an announcement made in the fall for people to, to propose to use next year's of Webb's time. Um, and a lot of the data are already public today, um, and all of the data will be made public at least at least one year, at, at, at most one year after they are taken. So an incredible thing that we, we forget sometimes is that this is a government thing, but that means it's also a public thing. 
we're posting pictures from NASA on our feeds. Those belong to us. This is not a copyright issue with NASA. It's a beautiful thing. What NASA releases to the public is a public archive. It's a public resource, not only for our country, but for the entire world. And our taxpayer dollars you know, made sure that this happened. And there were so many points in the program where they were looking to scrap it for going over budget. And um, there were so many advocates that just stepped in and said, no, the, <clears throat> the science is too important. We have to have this mission continue, even though the dollars are exceeding what our original budget was. And if you look at the total cost of the project, which I believe was around $10 billion um, at around this time of, of full deployment, uh, over the span of this mission, it would cost each taxpayer roughly about the cost of a cup of coffee as far as taxes go. Leaps and bounds in human development is happening right now because of this. Very, very small price to pay, even if they charge extra for cream and sugar <laughs> or, or oat milk, as I'm getting into. You know what I'm most excited about? There's tens of thousands of scientists, and frankly, some of them just got born, or not even born, yeah. uh, who, are, who are benefiting from this amazing telescope, because it will be with us for decades. It Can will be. That? We have, it took us about 25 years to get here since 1995, and we have at least 25 to go, I hope. So, Amber, can you, can you tell us a bit about what we're seeing here? Of course. This stunning vista of the cosmic cliffs of the Carina Nebula reveals new details about this vast stellar nursery. Today, for the first time, we're seeing brand new stars that were previously completely hidden from our view. Stargate was this idea, no one could figure out how to do it. We built this, or I built this big thing called the slit scan machine. Uh, this is a big light table here. This was about f four feet across and about 12 feet long, lit with uh, fluorescent lights, and we could build our artwork for the slit scan effect on this big table. And it was built of hundreds and hundreds of high contrast lithographs of uh, electron microscope photographs, op art from magazines. Uh, patterns, textures, colors, zipatone patterns, um, everything we can think of in a zillion color gels. And then this artwork was positioned on a giant sheet of glass and moved behind a slit. Here's this crazy machine I built called the, the slit scan machine. So you have here a 65 millimeter camera. You have a slit on the right and a slit on the left. And this camera is on a dolly so it can move toward and back from this slit. So. At the farthest back position, the camera's about 15 feet from the slit, and at the closest position, it's an inch and a half from the slit. And while the camera is moving in, the artwork is moving behind the slit. And it's actually shot in two passes, one for the right slit and one for the left slit. And we'd slightly pan the camera a little bit to pull these two slits together as, as kind of joined in infinity. And then over here's my little control box, which looks like that. Um, 
not very hard to build, a bunch of relays and circuits uh, and switches that sequenced this thing. I actually used uh, photographic darkroom timers to run this whole thing and just limit switches at the ends to automatically reverse the motors and do all this sequencing. And then I had to get the camera to focus automatically during these one-minute exposures from 15 feet to an inch and a half, which would take about a minute. Um, and during that minute, I had this little cam that was a, there's a bearing right there on a shaft that's following this, this cam rotation, which is on a rotating motor. This is a Selsun motor that's driving that through some gears. And so the, the camera's here, the lens is here, and so the lens can slide back and forth. So each frame of film actually includes a million different focal positions because the slit had to be in focus the whole way. So the one and only, the man, the myth, the legend, the genius Douglas Trumbull, may he rest in peace, so early taken from us in his early baby-faced 80s, still light years ahead of the rest of film and technology in general, uh, up until just a few months ago giving interviews about mind-blowing 3D, 4D experiential cinema and virtual reality. He invented a slit screen process for the virtual effects that take place during the Jupiter and Beyond sequence. What, what he did was he used translucent composite color images in collage form that were then backlit by colored gels and then photographed frame by frame on a track with only a narrow slit exposed. So you're just getting the tiniest amount of light possible at a time and exposing one frame at a time is that at all like a camera obscura it is very similar because you're you're using a pinpoint of light to create an effect or to, or to concentrate an effect there's a great diagram of the slit scan process mocked up by robert u taylor in 2008 that's published in uh, michael benson's book space odyssey on page 343 um you have the camera on a track here with the lens focused in on the slit. What is focused in on is this opaque black surface, like a part, like a like a foam board, with that four-foot slit in it. Behind it, the colored gels of composite images are ten feet high. Codoliths, color light gel, translucent photo glued to transparent acetate, then affixed to a large glass sheet on a rolling carriage. So, you have the camera on a track moving forwards and then you have the glass panes with the translucent light gels rolling on a perpendicular track from side to side mm -hmm. and in front is the piece of foam board or cardboard with the four foot slit on a stand stationary so the slit and the cardboard isn't moving everything else is so you're able to get a steady image and there's no shaking or wobbling Benson quotes this interview that Trumbull gave in uh, 1976 with Cinefix magazine. As a simple explanation of how slit scan works, I think everyone at one time or another has seen a time exposure photograph of city streets at night, where you see nothing except red and white streaks of light, caused by the fact that the cars are moving while the shutters open. You do not see the cars at any one point. Instead, you see an accumulated exposure of cars. If, during that same photograph, all the cars were blinking their lights on and off rapidly, instead of having them continuously on, you would get a series of dots and dashes. If you expanded that and took not just a point of light, but a bar of light, a fluorescent tube, for instance, and moved that toward the camera while the shutter was open, you would create a plane of exposure rather than a line. Then by modulating that light, turning it on or off, or changing the patterns in front of it, you would create an accumulated exposure that could be fairly complicated in content. 
normally when I moved about 15 feet here, I might have only moved the, art the artwork about eight inches, which created this weird stretching effect like I was doing on Jupiter. This actually was done first, but it's just a, a whole optical idea that's similar to uh, what's called a streak camera, which is often used at a racetrack. Jupiter itself was something that Douglas Trumbull was particularly proud of, um, the accuracy that they were able to get with Jupiter, dealing with colors on a plane with slow rotations to simulate the clouds and atmosphere having relative motion in a 3D space on a disk. And there was also a light effect used to create a, a little bit of a flare on the edge so that you would have a dynamic edge and not just a straight cutoff. So this projector here, which is a little opaque projector that artists use to put some piece of art up onto their canvas, would actually rotate around this rotating sphere and project a little image which is rotating inside there. So there's a little, mo there's a shaft going down that's rotating the artwork here. The shaft goes along here, comes down to some gears, there's a little motor here. It goes down to here and rotates this whole thing. And I photographed this in a darkened, a completely darkened room with nothing but that little rim illuminated by the projector. And this was my first test of Jupiter to validate that we could, in fact, make a spherical planet uh, out of a piece of flat artwork. The other thing that was used during that um, Jupiter and Beyond sequence that proved very effective in dealing with nebulae and things like that was color dye techniques uh, infused into a water tank and filming at high shutter speed. Um, a lot of effects like that have held up extremely well in 70 millimeter presentations because everything photographed is... Yeah, the, uh, the molecules of the food coloring and everything is... There's no is so small. Yeah, you're not going to have any degradation for enlarging it um, like you would from um, a digital effect which is part of why he pushed for that 70 millimeter as well. I mean, Stanley Kubrick had worked with 70 millimeter before in Spartacus, or maybe 65, Panavision. Um, yeah. But uh, this had to be because the effects don't hold up unless you, I mean, the, the effects in Star Wars and many other things had to be done at 70 millimeter Blade Runner as well um, in order to comp down at 35 and not look bad because right. they were running that film so hard and so fast and re-exposing it so many times that there was wear and tear that was going to, if it was at the same resolution as the rest of the image, it would look twice as grainy mm -hmm. rather than fitting in nicely at a high resolution. Wow. One reason those movies still hold up well at 4K scans because they took the care with that background and they were analyzing it frame by frame because that was the only way they could work on it was frame by frame. Right. Um, the the 70 millimeter resolution and the Todd AO was a huge part of why that worked. Um, Cinerama, classic Cinerama, which Douglas Trumbull was fascinated with his whole life and was even trying to come up with a modern version of in this last few months. Um, it required a three-camera process to shoot and a three-projector process to project. So you, you had left, center, and right shooting at a slight angle, bowed out slightly so that there was a... Yeah. So you have a Obviously. concave screen... Yes. So if you ever see a Blu-ray of something like How the West Was Won, Turner, or through Warner Brothers, has done a great job of doing what they call a smile box. So you can actually see the movie in what, it kind of looks like a banner. Um, it's, it's, it curves inward and becomes slimmer in the middle and then expands out onto the sides. So instead of black bars on the sides, you have these black 
sort of semicircles, like two big thumbs over the top and bottom of the screen because it's it's comping for the concave image that you would have had in the theater. Because if you run it flat, you see huge image distortion. And this was true in the earlier CinemaScope pictures that would run with really, really wide lenses, which they all had to do to capture that amount of frame in an anamorphic, well, or pre-anamorphic uh, cell, film cell. So every time the camera moved or people moved within a shot, you would see some sort of bowing or fisheye distortion effect. So if you were to ever, if you were to have a projector and you wanted to project one of these movies and you had the smile box feature, you could simply make yourself a nice concave screen, fire it up and it would adjust and compensate in a nice simulation of what Cinerama would be on a, much, on a much smaller form because Cinerama, Cinerama was an event, and I saw 2001 in the Cinerama Dome in 2008 as part of the AFI celebration, and it was an original 1968 print um, projected in Tadeo, not Cinerama, because 2001 was in Tadeo and not Cinerama, and that's not just because of cost, but it's because of practicality as well. Having a roadshow presentation, trying to get your money back for a two-and-a-half-hour movie with an intermission, and be able to, to reach the demand that this movie had, you you had to have it in a form where one projector could handle it. So Tadeo was basically a way of compressing the image down three to one, super anamorphic, and then there'd be a Tadeo prism mounted to your theater's projector that when you ran the film would then spread the light waves back out into the full three to one size. And that, that's Tadeo because it was founded by Michael Todd, um, entrepreneur, film producer, and the former husband of Elizabeth Taylor until he died in a plane crash while making uh, Around the World in 80 Days. What? <laughs> in 1959. So he patented a new, cheaper way of doing Cinerama, and Cinerama purists don't like that because there is a quality degradation, uh, because obviously you're, you're getting literally one-third of the image that you would otherwise. Yeah. But um, for the survival of the medium, it sure. worked out for the best, yeah, and certainly for this film. Yeah. I mean, and they were already subject to degradation at every use. And, and processing the film, I mean, the processing costs and the distribution costs, the, the shipping, you know, get the, all the distribution would triple because you'd have three times the, the amount of film to process and ship out to theaters. And when you're syncing these things up, it's like traditional, um, the reason that traditional 3D finally gave way was because the, synchron the synchronization issue which is those red and blue glasses, right? You get the, the two strips of film, one for the right eye, one for the left eye. Same process with Cinerama. You got one for the left, one for the right, one in the middle. And so you have to sync them up to the frame. And if one stutters, or if, God forbid, the, the motor slowed down for a moment on one of those and it popped out even just a quarter of a frame, just a few sprocket holes, you've got a headache on your hands. Yeah. And people just can't, you can't watch it no. anymore. And so, and, and if the film snaps or breaks motion down, sickness a bad thing? motion sickness is a terrible thing. That's one reason why there's a, a, not a whole lot of camera movement in those early examples. You know, you, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're tripling your margin of it. You're tripling your odds of. Uh, yeah, I can, I can imagine because I'm sure if they do it in the same fashion that film was done right before they switched to digital those canisters would come into the theater with just the film and then a separate shipment of other canisters of advertisements would come 
and you would splice those together to make the full reel for the cinema. So not only do you have degradation from running three different films, but you've also got spliced film with ad reels. The complications are just unbound. I mean, and you had to deal with it. And that, that film you. was incredibly flammable. And just if one of those were to break, the whole image would be, you know, useless at that point. Yeah, nitrate film in the early days before celluloid, that was the dangerous stuff. Harold Lloyd, Charlie Chaplin, many studios had fires, lost a lot of stuff that way. Not just films, but because it was so flammable. I mean, someone put it like, <laughs> like imagine printing your newspaper out of napalm. I mean, that's essentially what this is, you know. <laughs> <laughs> unstable at room temperature ready to burst and when i was at the george eastman house in rochester um the director of the center took me up to the projection booth where tiff was was coming in the toronto international film festival was having a remote event showing uh basically a a, a, a sub festival of nitrate a nitrate film festival celebration and there is nothing more beautiful than seeing and i have seen a nitrate print projected and it, it is, it's the, the silver, it's the, there's something in the metallic chemicals that are used in the, develop, in the development process that gives it that sheen that is, you know, one reason why it's called the silver screen, not just because of the projection screen material, but because of that sheen. But in that booth, in the projection booth at the George Eastman house, because it's one of the few that is certified to run nitrate legally, because it is... You know, I mean, I don't know if it's in the alcohol, tobacco and firearms uh, jurisdiction, but it is, you know, a very it's a hazardous material. So you have to, especially if you're going to have hundreds of people in a room. I mean, this is how fires used to happen and people died in theater fires because anyone's ever seen Cinema Paradiso, the Italian film. What happens is exactly that. It just takes one second for the image to get caught or jammed in the projector. The heat from the the bulb in the projector melts it. Then all of a sudden the whole thing goes up in flames. And so in this projection booth, the whole thing is encased in metal. It's a big metal box, this projection booth. And there's a there's a big metal door. It's I don't know if it's lead, I can't remember, but it's a big metal flap, like a uh, like a turret out the side of a ship for a cannon. And the projector sits there just like in a regular projection booth. You have the one little window where the lens of the projector points out. And that's that's the hole in this quote-unquote turret. So that when they're using the nitrate projector and the nitrate film is in the projector, if the nitrate catches and catches the whole thing on fire, it will melt these chains that were some metal that has a lower melting point. And the chains would melt. The flat door would swing shut seal the metal box that is the projection booth and burn the projectors burn the projectionists to death and save the audience which is why you're required to have at least two projectionists when running a nitrate film so that one person can pull the other one out of the wow. room because you only have seconds before the whole thing just goes up and you're in an inferno they wow. even store those things miles away into the countryside in bunkers underground bunkers and then they bring them mm. in in armored trucks have to keep them at a certain temperature well, um, so volatile. they made it so much safer, but up until the switch to digital, there were still problems with fires, and that was not uncommon in a lot of theaters. And um, 
the the film the cellular material and the um these you think of these like tiny little film reels when you picture a projection movie happening but that's not the case they actually are on these gigantic platters that are often three feet in diameter where these giant rolls of film will sit because you've only got 10 minutes per reel so you got to thread them out and, and you and so yeah so essentially you stitch all those together you build your reel and that's your movie it's got your ads it's got the movie it's got the um either pre-roll or post-roll if there is one and full disclosure when i was in high school i worked at a cinema in our, our local town and <laughs> as uh, as unbelievable as this story may sound i was working as a doorman and uh, we essentially were there to do theater checks to make sure the film was in focus and sounded good and we also had the unfortunate job of cleaning those up afterwards uh, which you know that's neither here nor there but there was a eventful eve on a hot day and i remember our projectionist giving a radio call and this was uh, this was 2004 and the the call went out i think there were only two doormen working that day it was me and uh, one other person and he simply said theater seven's film is on fire I need somebody to go evacuate the theater. So I was closest. I, I, I took I took it upon myself to open the door of Theater 7 and proceed into what was essentially a sold-out showing of Man on Fire. I am not kidding you. <laughs> In the middle of the movie, <laughs> Man on Fire... Burst into flames on the platter. Our projectionist, Ryan Katko, uh, swiftly put it out with a, an extinguisher, but um, for safety reasons and because of the buildup of smoke that was going on in the projection room, I um, calmly um, told everyone that they needed to move to the lobby and we would <laughs> either get them back in or refund their tickets. <laughs> Can you believe that? Man on fire was on fire? It was on fire. Tony would have loved that story so much. God bless him. God rest his soul. We lost him 10 years ago next month. I cannot believe that. He's, that, that film was so fire, it caught fire. He was so intense. Denzel. That reversal stock, hand cranking, animated subtitling. Denzel, goodness. I couldn't make it up, and it can be corroborated by people that you know as well. Yes. Um, that was a, a very funny <laughs> place to be uh, at that time. Nobody was injured other than the film. <laughs> Pretty sure we did have to get that replaced, but it was showing in several theaters, so I'm sure we had a backup. <laughs> <laughs> the only time that we had it, I worked there for two and a half years, and we only had one film catch on fire. Let's <laughs> wish. I wish you had more time. And from Clavius Base, this is Brad. And this is Wes signing off. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs>